Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 169, The Rise of Wessex. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Vincent, Leanne, and Anthony for contributing already. This season, we've seen the Anglo-Saxons come incredibly close to forming an early unified English kingdom. In fact, they will continue their attempts in this episode. Though we can guess how it will go, because we've seen their culture and governmental structure hamstring their previous attempts at unity. From our vantage point of over a thousand years later, we can see the broad strokes of their societies. We can look at generations and spot flaws that would have been nearly invisible to them. We can also see the future. For example, we know that we're on the cusp of a major invasion. We also know about the famed House of Wessex. But the Anglo-Saxons didn't have the benefit of our perspective. They didn't know what was coming. They couldn't see the arc of history stretching back across time. For them, it wasn't the House of Wessex that would have been famous. It was Mercia and Northumbria. Wessex was nothing more than a recent upstart. Under Egbert, they have made serious gains, but what was his family when compared with the great dynasties of Penda and Oswiu? Unbeknownst to them, but knownst to us, today we are covering the last episode of Season 4, The Anglo-Saxon Ascendancy. This is as good as they'll have it for a long time. But from their perspective, it was just another decade. Last week, we saw Mercia collapse in about five years, with multiple Mercian kings marching into East Anglia in an attempt to retake it. There are reasons why this happened the way it did, and ultimately, it's because Mercia wasn't about to lie down and accept their demise. They had lost the South, yes, but if they could retake the financially powerful Eastern Kingdom, they might be able to reassert Mercian dominance. And this wasn't the first time that a Mercian hegemony had crashed into the rocks. A comeback might have seemed inevitable, actually, which could explain why East Anglia was looking to the West Saxons for support against the belligerent Mercia. However, East Anglia was a death trap for Mercian kings of the 9th century. But that raises a question. Why was East Anglia so deadly this time? And what made it so different from all the other points in their history? I mean, sure, they have the Fens, which can provide a certain degree of protection, but that didn't stop Penda from killing more than a few East Anglian nobles and kings. So why couldn't King Bjornwolf follow in his footsteps? Well, to start with, 9th century East Anglia had links to foreign trade via Scandinavia, which provided them significant amounts of wealth. That was an enormous boon, because it meant that the kings could reward their warbands from their own coffers. Not only that, but they had an income that would allow for a sizable force. Further, the wealth generated by trade meant that they didn't need to fight as many wars. After all, with the warbands already paid for, there wasn't as much pressure to acquire tribute from neighboring kingdoms. Consequently, we don't see them mentioned in the Chronicles as much as some of their neighbors. And that might be boring for us, but it also means that their forces weren't getting exhausted the way the more warlike kingdoms were. Think about what Mercia went through in the last five years. They fought the Welsh, 
And they won that campaign, but they were probably a bit banged up in the process. And that's an issue because these warbands were small, specialized forces. We're not talking about conscript armies that could be drawn from the villages, handed a weapon, and then thrown at the enemy. When a veteran of the Hearthworld falls, it could take years to train someone to fill the gap effectively. And so Mercia fought one war, and then rather than returning, resting, and healing after their victory over the Welsh, the warbands were quickly deployed against Wessex. And we're told that both sides of that conflict were butchered. So we can be sure that after that battle, there were now serious holes in the shield wall. But Mercia wasn't done. The warbands were then deployed against East Anglia. And East Anglia had fresh warriors waiting for them. There's a very good chance that Mercia was simply exhausted by war, and the warbands had been weakened to such an extent that despite their experience, they couldn't withstand the healthy East Anglian warriors. And that would be another contributing factor to why East Anglia became such a death trap. But East Anglia had another advantage on top of their economy and the fact that their army wasn't bleeding out before they even got to the battlefield. They had a stable government. Now this seems counterintuitive on first glance. East Anglia has been a client kingdom, on and off, for ages now. How could a government in rebellion, or even a fledgling independent government, be more stable than a kingdom like Mercia, which is self-governed for generations? Well, the thing is that the East Anglian royalty seems to have managed to pull it together in the last hundred years or so. Consequently, it looks like there was only a narrow group of bloodlines who were eligible to rule. That's why we're pretty sure that it was King Aethelstan of East Anglia who had retaken the throne and was now running around killing Mercian kings like it was going out of style. There were only so many people who were eligible at that point, and it just doesn't look like there are many rival dynasties over there. Now, contrast that with what's been happening in Northumbria for about the last hundred years. They haven't been all that active outside of their borders, and that's probably at least partially due to the fact that they are racked with internal issues, with no less than five families killing each other over the throne. Or look at what's currently happening in Mercia. Even if Mercia wasn't exhausted by external wars, you can imagine that their warbands would have been battered from internal problems similar to what's going on in Northumbria. I mean, we've seen civil wars, gibbering kings, dynastic purges, murders, and all manner of other internal problems. And then you have East Anglia. Even though we haven't heard about them being a warrior kingdom for over a hundred years, you can see how they would be incredibly dangerous as an enemy at this point. They've got a stable economy, a stable government, and they have fresh troops. And yet King Bjornwolf thought it would be a good idea to march on them with his battered and injured army. And he was killed. Then King Ludeca took what was left of that army and marched again. And they were slaughtered. And now we've got the new King Wiglaf, who said, Hey, I've got an idea, you guys. How about we don't go to East Anglia? And everyone agreed that that was a brilliant notion. And so they stayed home. Meanwhile, on that same year, 826, across the North Sea, King Harold Clack of Denmark, who was on friendly terms with the Frankish Empire, was baptized as a Christian in Mine. Now this was rather popular with the Franks, but it didn't make him many friends in the pagan north. And as you might have guessed, he soon had to flee his kingdom and go to the court of his friend Emperor Louis the Pious of Francia. 
But despite his powerful Christian ally, King Harold would never retake the throne. Now this shuffling of power in Scandinavia might just be a coincidence. But right as Britain is being distracted by the death throes of Mercia, things on the continent were getting really tense. Back in Mercia, we're seeing a return of the old Mercian royal family. Sort of. It looks like the new King Wiglaf might have been part of King Aethelbald's family. Do you remember King Aethelbald? He was the guy who ran around with all those nuns. Well, it appears that King Wiglaf might have been part of the dynasty that escaped Offa's purge. The reason why I say that is because King Wiglaf and his grandson were both buried with King Aethelbald at Repton. And that's highly suggestive of a familial relationship. Also, it could explain why he was able to take the throne in the first place, as he would have had to have had some sort of claim, and a powerful ancestor like Aethelbald, who formed a large Mercian hegemony, well, that certainly would be a feather in Wiglaf's camp. And don't forget that we're talking about Mercia here, so the king is only one half of the royal family's importance. The queen was also vitally important, and in this case, Wiglaf was married to Chinnathrith. Based upon her name as well as her high station, scholars suspect that she's connected to King Penda and Queen Chinawiza. As a result, the new Whig dynasty could well be an attempt for two powerful royal branches to unify and put an end to the instability within the Mercian royal circles. This might be the Middle Ages equivalent of the end of the Wars of the Roses, where you had the Lancastrian and Yorkist sides essentially putting an end to the conflict by marrying together. Now, fellow literature nerds might recognize the name Wiglaf from Beowulf. This isn't the first time that we've seen names from Beowulf, actually. For example, the poet also spent a lot of time talking about Offa of Anglin. But the interesting thing about Wiglaf is the fact that he was noted for being the last supporter of Beowulf. And Beowulf is remarkably similar in sound to Bjornwolf. This could easily be a coincidence, and we should be careful about applying a work of fiction to history, but it is an interesting bit of information that I thought you'd enjoy chewing over. But back to King Wiglaf. For two years, he reigned over Mercia, and remarkably little is known about that period, actually. Furthermore, not much is known about the other major power in the south, Wessex. It's entirely possible that both kingdoms were licking their wounds and desperately trying to replenish their warbands after the disastrous battle at Elendon four years earlier. And if that's the case, there wouldn't be anything for the chroniclers to record. I mean, what were they going to say? 828, on this year, Elderman Harrowald was still trying to teach Unferth how to properly hold a shield? I just don't see them writing that down. But in 829 there was finally something important to record. It looks like the warbands of King Egbert of Wessex had taken advantage of their four-year respite, and now they were looking to rumble. Now, King Egbert already held Wessex, Sussex, Essex, Surrey, Kent, and probably was at least drawing tribute from Cornwall. But this wasn't the first time that a West Saxon king had done well, only to lose everything later on to her neighbors. And Egbert might have been cognizant of that fact, as well as the danger that Mercia presented. And he may have wanted to secure his position. Additionally, Aethelbald, Offa, and Conewulf had all proven that large southern hegemonies could be built and maintained. 
Egbert might have realized that he was on the cusp of having one of his own. And if he could just manage to take the Midlands, he'd have as much power, if not more power, than King Offa. And what better time to invade than when Mercia was already weakened by three successive and brutal defeats. Looking at the incentives, all signs pointed towards a West Saxon invasion of Mercia. And in 829, Egbert made his move. We're told that he conquered the Mercian kingdom and drove King Wiglaf into exile. Interestingly, we aren't told of a battle. There may well have been a battle, and the scribes just left that part out so they could tell us about a lunar eclipse that happened on Midwinter's Mass. Because apparently there was one. So yeah, any battles might have been edited out just to make space for the eclipse. But it does seem possible that there might not have been a battle, doesn't it? Mercia had only two years to recover from their series of defeats. They might not have had much of an army to muster at that point. And even if they had an army, they might have realized that the West Saxons, who had fared far better in battle than they, simply had superior forces, and so they might have been ordered by Wiglaf to stand down. Or maybe they were even unwilling to engage in yet another suicide charge. The only thing that's clear is that Egbert took Mercia and all her remaining subkingdoms. The Chronicle then tells us of the Bretwaldas, the Britain rulers, who started with King Alla of the South Saxons in the 5th century. And they tell us that with King Egbert of Wessex, they found the 8th Bretwalda. A king, they claimed, who was on the same level as King Aethelbert of Kent, who brought Christianity over, and King Raedwald of East Anglia, who conquered Northumbria and placed Edwin on the throne and King Oswiu of Northumbria, the man who took down Penda, and large numbers of his own family. That is an incredible hall of fame to be included in. But something to point out. The Chronicle was written by the West Saxons, and they were a bit grumpy with the Midland kings who had given them so much trouble. So naturally, the Mercians were not included in their list of Bretwaldas, even though there probably should be at least three or four Mercian Bretwaldas on that list. But whatever, Egbert made the list in 829. He was in. And he wasn't done yet. He had marshaled his forces, he'd marched them into Mercia, and he very well might have discovered that Wiglaf had already left town. But Egbert didn't get all dressed up for nothing. And there was another large English kingdom that hadn't submitted to him yet. Northumbria. When we last spoke about Northumbria, they deposed King Erdwulf and refused the request of both Charlemagne and the Pope to restore him to power. But they did compromise by putting his son, Ainred, on the throne. That's how we ended up with King Ainred of Northumbria 19 years ago. 19 years is a long time in any kingdom in the Middle Ages. But in Northumbria, it's an eternity. However, against all odds, Ainred was still alive, and he was still on the throne. That's a nigh-impossible task in Northumbria, and if you ask me, he was one miracle away from attaining sainthood. But unfortunately, we still don't know much about this period in Northumbrian history. However, the fact that he's ruled for so long suggests that he was a capable and effective ruler. Honestly, given the degree of instability in that region, he must have been an extraordinary man, and probably an incredibly gifted diplomat, considering how many rivals there were in his kingdom. Unfortunately, 
Even though he was establishing peace within his own borders, he couldn't control what was happening elsewhere in Britain. And now King Egbert of Wessex was marching north with a large number of West Saxon warriors. Not only that, but according to Roger of Wendover, the West Saxon king was ravaging Northumbria as he marched. That's an unusual and highly provocative act. We've seen kings ravage the villages of rival kingdoms before, but it's typically a punitive measure carried out by forces with a heavy grudge to bear. And that makes me wonder why Egbert was doing it. Was there more conflict between Wessex and Northumbria than we know of? Was King Ainred unwilling to meet the West Saxon army, and Egbert was trying to lure him out? Was Egbert just a brutal and ruthless king? It's hard to say exactly what was going on there, but it is certainly unusual. Hell, this whole thing is actually rather strange, because we don't even know why King Egbert went that far north. West Saxons typically didn't go beyond the Humber. So what was Egbert's plan? With hindsight, we might be tempted to say, he was trying to form England. But England wasn't a thing yet. No one had any concept of it. So we can't assume that simply because England would be formed later on, that the West Saxon expansionism was seeking that goal. But that being said, I'm at a loss for what other cause Egbert would have had for invasion other than an attempt to control most, if not all, of the kingdoms of the Heptarchy. Perhaps like Conewulf of Mercia, he had dreams of Imperium. Who knows? Whatever the reason for his actions, we're told that King Ainred of Northumbria marshaled his forces in 829 and met King Egbert and his West Saxon warriors at the River Dor near Sheffield. Then the Chronicle blandly states that King Ainred submitted to King Egbert and offered to be his subject and obedient to him, and that Egbert and his forces then returned to Wessex. If that's true, it's quite the letdown. But it might not be true. Remember who is writing the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle? The West Saxons. They had a dog in this fight, and they may have wanted to imply the victory was larger than it was. They also had reasons to want to make Egbert, who was Alfred the Great's grandfather, look fantastic. And what better way to do that than to state that he seized Mercia and Northumbria in a single year? It may have happened that way. But with so many biases in play, we cannot simply assume that because the Chronicle is old, it's an unimpeachable source. In fact, Barbara York suggests that there was more fighting than the Chronicle lets on, and that in the end, the two kings might have reached a mutual peace and recognition of independence, similar to some of the earlier fights that Wessex had engaged in. That sounds entirely plausible, especially since we don't see any signs of Ainred's submission to Wessex. For example, we don't read of it elsewhere, and we don't see any northern coins with King Egbert's name on them. But even if Egbert only took the Midlands, he was now, without question, a Bretwalda. The degree of power he held was staggering, and he wasted no time in the administration of his new lands. He began to rule Mercia directly. He seized the Mint of London, and he issued coins stating that he was the King of Mercia. King Egbert was supreme for about a year. Come on, this is Mercia. You didn't think they'd accept foreign rule less than a decade after they had their own emperor, did you? Hell no. 
It's not clear exactly how it came about, but in 830, less than a year after Egbert's victory over Mercia, King Wiglaf returned from exile in force. It appears that Wiglaf might have been taking advantage of the fact that Wessex was overreaching, and they had recently marched into North Wales to demand their submission. Again, we're seeing the danger of trying to fight multiple wars with what amounts to a small special forces team. So, while Wessex was probably already engaged in Wales, the Mercians rallied and struck their likely war-weary overlords. The attack was incredibly successful, and the West Saxons were pushed south, losing Mercia and her client kingdoms, even losing London, and crucially, the London Mint. And then the Mercian forces reclaimed other southern lands that were lost to Wessex, including the often disputed territory of Berkshire. Wessex was in retreat, and we don't see any evidence of King Egbert ruling over Mercia or Northumbria following this event. Furthermore, it's also possible that at this point, King Wiglaf also seized Essex and established it as a Mercian satellite under King Sigaric. And that's where we're going to pause for a little bit, but here's where we are. Northumbria is stable for the first time in ages under the guidance of someone who appears to have been rather extraordinary, King Ainred. Mercia has reestablished its independence under King Wiglaf. Essex continues to be independent and largely cut off from the infighting that plagues the rest of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. And Wessex, despite its recent loss, still controls a vast portion of the south and even has the submission of some of the Welsh kingdoms. But across the North Sea, warriors were training. Ships were being constructed. And soon, a fury will explode out of the north that will change history forever. Next time, we're going to start catching up with what's going on in Scotland and Wales. And the good news for us, or at least me, is that with the end of the Heptarchy and with what's going on in Scotland, soon, instead of dozens of kingdoms, we should be dealing with a mere handful of them. And so it should be a bit easier to tell a unified series, at least sometime soon. We're getting ever closer to a true British History Podcast. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com, and we have all kinds of things you can join if you want to get involved in our communities, Facebook, Twitter, all of it. And you can find links to all of those at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Okay, it's that time again. Let's see what you've learned in the show. Question 1. Pope Leo III wasn't very popular with the allies of his predecessor, and they made their feelings quite clear. What did they do to Pope Leo, and what were their accusations against him? Question 2. Asser tells us a weird story about Queen Aidbur of Wessex, daughter of Offa. And it was largely a load of nonsense and features this bizarre story about Charlemagne throwing a temper tantrum because Aidbur found his son more attractive than him. Scholars point to two reasons for why this fabricated story was included in Asser's panegyric. What were they? Question three. Archbishop Wolfrid was a notable figure in our story, but he also just had a cool name. What does Wolfrid mean? Question four. 
Archbishop Wolfrid and Emperor Conewulf really had a hard time getting along. What was the initial primary reason for that conflict? Question 5. Did Archbishop Wolfrid order the assassination of Emperor Conewulf's son? Question 6. According to legend, will reading Psalm 108 backwards like a Black Sabbath album make your eyes fall out and kill you? Question 7. Who was Charlemagne's successor? Question 8. True or false? Wolfrid, just like other southern archbishops, had taken an oath to be obedient to his superiors. Question 9. When Wolfrid went the full Wolfrid and did a massive power grab, seizing monastic control and breaking from canonical norms, what did Emperor Conewulf do? Question 10. King Bjornwolf of Mercia and King Ludeca of Mercia were killed back-to-back -back by warbands from this kingdom. Name that kingdom. All right, do you have your answers down? Let's see how you did. Question 1. Pope Leo III wasn't very popular with the allies of his predecessor, and they made their feelings quite clear. What did they do to Pope Leo, and what were their accusations against him? They got a gang together and curb-stomped him and tried to tear his eyes and tongue out. And they claimed he committed adultery and perjury. Question 2. Asser tells us a weird story about Queen Aidbur of Wessex, daughter of Offa. And it was largely a load of nonsense and features this bizarre story about Charlemagne throwing a temper tantrum because Aidbur found his son more attractive than him. Scholars point to two reasons for why this fabricated story was included in Asser's panegyric. What were they? First, Asser was establishing that Alfred's family was the best choice for Wessex and England. And second, he was explaining why women were demoted and were no longer queens, but just the king's wife in Wessex. Question three. Archbishop Wolfrid was a notable figure in our story, but he also just had a cool name. What does Wolfrid mean? It means counseled by wolves. Question four. Archbishop Wolfrid and Emperor Conewulf really had a hard time getting along. What was the initial primary reason for that conflict? Land rights. Question five. Did Archbishop Wolfrid order the assassination of Emperor Conewulf's son? Uh, maybe? Question six. According to legend, will reading Psalm 108 backwards like a Black Sabbath album make your eyes fall out and kill you? Yeah. Now, do we have anyone who wants to try that out? You know, for science? Question seven. Who was Charlemagne's successor? Louis the Pious. Question eight. True or false? Wolfrid, just like other southern archbishops, had taken an oath to be obedient to his superiors. True, but he probably had his fingers crossed. Question nine. When Wolfrid went the full Wolfrid and did a massive power grab, seizing monastic control and breaking from canonical norms, what did Emperor Conewulf do? He wrote to the Pope, and according to Dr. Richard North of University College London, he accused the Archbishop of being involved in the murder of his son. Question 10. King Bjornwolf of Mercia and King Ludeca of Mercia 
were killed back to back by warbands from this kingdom. Name that kingdom. East Anglia. Okay, I hope you did well, and I'll see you on the next one.